Good morning, Church of Lovin. Uh, it's really good to be here with you today and to, um, get to have the opportunity to preach in this sermon series with you. Um, actually, uh, it'll be my only opportunity because next week uh, I'm going out of town for a little vacation uh, with my family. So for some reason, I agreed to uh, go on this large vacation. Oh, it's this, this large group of people on this vacation. It's basically me and my family and my wife's uh, three or four best friends and all their families. So we're going to be invading California with like 25 people, and that's going to be a lot of fun. But one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to go to Disneyland. And so, uh, you know, we were out with a couple of these couples uh, a few weeks ago, and we were just talking about this idea of going to Disneyland together with all these people. And this one guy who uh, I really respect him because he's like totally about maximizing every moment, and he's always about scheduling, and that's the kind of way that he thinks. He was like, I have this plan and this strategy that will maximize our utility while we're at Disneyland. Because at Disneyland, I don't know if you guys have been there, but there's this thing called the, I think it's called the Fast Pass system. And what it is, is you can go to a ride, and you can take one ticket, and instead of waiting in the line for an hour, it'll say, come back in 20 minutes, and you can go in this Fast Pass line, and you can, uh, you don't have to wait in the line. But there's a trick to it, is that you can only take one ticket at a time. So you can't just run around the park and grab all these Fast Pass tickets and go on rides because that wouldn't make sense. You can take one ticket, skip the line, maybe wait 20 minutes instead of an hour, and then once you get swiped in, then it unlocks your account, and then you're free after the ride to go and get your next FastPass ticket. So this guy has come up with a plan. I don't know if he Googled it or whatever. He's like, this is what we're going to do. We're all going to split up. And some of the parents are going to stay with the kids and we'll go get that FastPass ticket and they'll wait in that line. And during that time the other group of parents will run ahead to the next ride and they will wait. So the second that they get confirmation that that fast pass has been, like, has been logged in and the count is unlocked, then we'll get more fast pass tickets. So we're going to decrease the waiting time and maximize the number of rides that you can go on at Disneyland. So we're just constantly running around the park in Los Angeles in July when it's like 100 degrees, but the benefit is our kids will just go on ride after ride after ride after ride. And I was sitting there, I was like, okay, that, that, makes, that makes some sense. That's, that's a good strategy. And this other guy who was with us, who's a lot more low-key, a lot more chill, he says, what if we don't want to do that? <laughs> what if I just want to get my two daughters dressed up like the princesses and get their hair done and makeup, and we just want to leisurely walk around Disneyland? And what if it's okay that we don't do 20 rides in a day? What if we just do two and enjoy our time there? I sat there and I was just astonished. I was like, who thinks like that? Who actually thinks? Like, it's not about squeezing every less ounce out of this, our time on vacation, but just like, let's just take it slower. Let's miss out on some rides. Let's just have some time to rest. And I realized then that I'm really bad at resting. I very rarely come back from a vacation and was like, oh, that was... That was, that was restful. Usually I'm like so focused on vacation time. I work so hard during all the other weeks that when I actually have vacation time, I just don't want to waste it. So I sit there and I plan and I schedule and I organize. I basically try to get all the fast pass tickets. And it's not just me. I was uh, talking to Jess Wade, who's like our administrator on staff. And, you know, she lives in, a, she, she lives in Orlando, or that's like where she grew up. 
And she says it's, it's so funny for native, I don't know what you call them, Orlandoinians, but it's so funny because when you get on the plane to Orlando, you see all these families and they're so excited. They're like, oh my gosh, we're going to Disney World. And like, it's like the, the families are getting along and they have so much energy and they're so hopeful. And then she says on the flight back, you look at these families and they're just worn out. They're arguing. They're grumpy. They're tired. And I think it points to this fact that we just don't know how to rest very well. And so we're in this sermon series where we're talking about this biblical concept of Sabbath, of resting. And the Sabbath series has this tagline, where do we find our rest? Where do we find our rest? You know, last week, uh, James, Pastor James started us out in, uh, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20. And, 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 and we see there that God commands his people to rest, to remember the Sabbath and to not work, to cease working and to rest. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, I think, if you look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, whether you're religious or not, no matter your faith background, I think if you look at the Ten Commandments, most of the time you think these kind of make sense. These are kind of reasonable things that God, it makes sense why God would make these the ten laws that mankind must obey. You know, God starts by saying, don't replace me with other things. Okay? Don't worship other things because if you do, whatever that thing is, no matter how good it is, if you make that thing ultimate, it cannot bear the weight of you turning to it and making it into a God. And that applies to everything. If you turn to your spouse, your husband and wife, and I'm saying, I'm going to make you ultimate in my life. I'm going to make you my God. I'm going to worship you. Ultimately, your marriage will suffer. If you make money, if you make wealth, if you make work, if you say, that's the thing that I'm going to build my life around, it cannot sustain the weight that you put on it when you say that it is your God. That's the first commandment. It's a kind of paraphrasing of the first commandment, but, 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 but that's basically it. You shall have no other God before me. And that makes sense. You know, other ones like don't be a liar, don't bear false witness. Most of us would be like, that makes sense. You know, be careful around your neighbor's wife. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. That makes good common sense. Don't steal, don't murder people. That's good advice. Very few people would object to any of those things. So as you go through these Ten Commandments, you're going, yeah, 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 sure. That makes sense. Of course God would be concerned with it. I can understand why God would command me to do that thing. But kind of in the middle of these Ten Commandments, in, ten of the, in the middle of kind of these top ten rules that God gives us to live by, including these great, ethical, agreeable rules, there's this commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you'll work on the seventh you won't. Commands us to cease and to rest. And in a way, this one commandment sticks out from all the others because if we're honest, this is the one that we're, we would say to ourselves, I'm not exactly sure why God is so concerned about that. I don't know why God, of all the things that are important to God, why is he so concerned that I have to rest each week? It's so much so that if I was going to stand up here today as your pastor and I was going to tell you that this is the end of my sermon because God said it in 
the Ten Commandments, because God declared it so, you should obey and just go and do it. It's mandatory. It's required of you. You have to this week pick out a day, rest, and the week after that, and the week after that, and so on and so on. You have to do it. If I was going to say that to you, some of you would be like, okay, cool. Like, as long as we end right now, I'll do it. I'll take that deal. If we can get out of here and enjoy this nice day, I'll take that deal. We can just stop right there. But then some of you guys would just ignore it. You'd be like, okay, whatever, but I'm not going to do it. But I think some of you would actually get defensive. I think some of you would actually be upset. Regardless of the fact that it, God commands it so in Scripture, if I actually said to you, you have to do that this week, you'd be angry at me. You'd say, where do you get off telling me how I spend my time? Where do you get off telling me that I have to take a day off and rest? The walls would come up. You'd get defensive. You'd get heated maybe. And isn't it weird because what are we talking about here? We're talking about rest. We're talking about rest. God in this Ten Commandments is not telling you that you have to wash the car once a week. He's not telling you you have to mow the lawn. He's not telling you that you have to do something that you wouldn't like to do that wouldn't be good for you. He's commanding you to rest, but yet we still resist and challenge it. That's an interesting thing, because think about it. Like In a a month month and a half or so, it's going to be Labor Day. Could you imagine the Friday before Labor Day, your boss would be like, hey, what are you going to do on this Labor Day weekend? And you would just be like, no. I refuse to take Labor Day off. You can't make me take Labor Day off. That's so legalistic of you. You would never say that because you're like, of course I would. But there's something with work and rest that makes us territorial and maybe even a little bit rebellious when it comes to God. So that's what we're going to talk about today in today's sermon. And we're going to talk about why it's so difficult to rest, but in, through the lens of this idol or the way that we worship our work. So we're going to have three points today. The first is we don't rest because we're quick to let our work enslave us. Second point is we don't rest because we don't trust that God is a good father. And the third point is we don't rest because we don't believe that we are God's children. Okay, so the first point is that we don't rest because we're quick to let our work enslave us. Now, I'm not here today to bash this concept of work. I'm not here today to tell you that you shouldn't work hard You shouldn't do your best. You shouldn't work with integrity. You shouldn't have a good work ethic. You know, because it's biblical to work hard. It's biblical to to do your best. You know, Tim Keller says in his book, Every Good Endeavor, the Bible begins talking about work as soon as it begins talking about anything. That is how important and basic it is. The author of the book of Genesis describes God's creation of the work of the world as work. In fact, he depicts the magnificent project of cosmos invention within a regular work week of seven days. And then he shows us human beings working in paradise. This view of work, connected with divine, orderly creation and human purpose, is distinct among the great faiths and belief systems of the world. See, we, we, we read things about God's work in creation, that God created the heavens and the earth, and we think that's some 
grand, holy, majestic, awesome, powerful thing. And it is. That's not wrong. It, it is all those things. But another way to put it bluntly is that in the beginning, God worked. And he worked because it's part of who he is. You can ask other people of other religions of how their God would come into this world, how he would choose to manifest himself if he were to enter into this world. And most of them would say that he would be like a king and a lord and he would have all these subjects and servants with him. Or they might say that he was, would be some mighty warrior and he would have armies of soldiers and he would come in to conquer. Our God is different though. Our God, when he came into this world, he came as a gardener and as a carpenter. Our God puts in work. In fact, the Hebrew word for work that is used over and over again in the first few chapters of Genesis is the, work for, is the word for ordinary human work. Gordon Wenham in Old Testament scholar states, it is unexpected that the extraordinary divine activity involved in creating heaven and earth should be so described as normal human work. And so where do we fit in? It says in Genesis that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The same word used for God's work is used here. The implication is that we are to partner in God's work. Let me put it another way. The Bible says that we, you and I, mankind, we were created in God's image. So in all of creation, whether you're talking about the mountains or the sunsets or the moon or the stars or the galaxies, in all of creation, the thing that he created that most reflects his glory in, this cre- in all of creation is you and me. That we are his image bearers. And that means that we are to reflect God into creation. And if God is a God who works, then we should be a people who work. So don't rest six days and work the seventh. That's not the way that God wants it. We are to work, work hard, work diligently to do our best. But on the seventh day, he rests. And if God is a God who works, then we as his image bearers should work. And if a God is a God who rests, then we as his image bearers should rest. The question then becomes, why why do we resist this commandment to rest so much? I think the answer to that is because there is something about work that if we're not careful, it will enslave us. There's something about how we view work, how we derive our value from it, how we find our identity in it that, 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 that makes it something that can easily consume us or entrap us. And God knows us. You know, we've been talking a lot about the Sabbath and, 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 and as it's one of the commandments and the Ten Commandments. And you know, last week when Pastor James preached and even now when we talked, we talked about Exodus 20. But you know, there's another part in Scripture where where Moses shares the Ten Commandments. It's in Deuteronomy 5, right? And the difference here is some time has passed. Moses is now an old man. He's probably about to die. And he's retelling some of these stories from the past to this new generation that will hopefully go into the promised land, or this new generation. And, um, 
And, 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 and so, so he's retelling the story of the Ten Commandments. And if you were to hold up Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 side by side, they're almost identical, word for word, almost identical. So I'm going to ask them to put up Exodus 20. And while you guys kind of follow along with it, I'm going to actually read to you Deuteronomy 5. And you'll see how close they are. Deuteronomy starts by saying, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, for the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servants and your female servant may rest as well as you. Okay? Pretty much the same, right? Pretty much identical, word for word, for word almost verbatim. Okay? And, but this next part is where there's a difference. Deuteronomy continues, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And Lord God... The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And there's a difference. In Exodus, he's saying, Sabbath is rooted in the story of creation, that we should rest because God rested, that as image bearers, that we should reflect God and his attributes and his characters into creation. But here in Deuteronomy 5, he doesn't talk about creation. He's saying that the Sabbath is rooted in the the story that we were slaves in Egypt and God delivered us. He took us out of Egypt. He set the captives free. He loosened the chains. He took people who were slaves and he freed them. That's the difference. Why? 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 Why would God, when he's talking through Moses, why would he talk about the Sabbath being rooted in the remembrance of a time when the Jews were slaves in Egypt? Why would he want the Jews to remember that, to relive that great difficulty? The fact that they were aliens in a foreign land, the fact that they were oppressed. They were slaves. They didn't have any say in what they did. They worked all day and all night without rest. Nothing was about them. They lost their humanity. They were dehumanized. They stopped being men and women and maybe even in some sense image bearers of God and they simply became commodities defined by their productivity. Why would God through Moses and Deuteronomy be like, remember that? Remember that? And I think it's because God knows that you and I and those Israelites thousands of years ago are quick to forget it. We're quick to forget that we were slaves and that we've been set free. And if we're honest, we're quick to step back into these rhythms of work that will leave us entangled and trapped and enslaved by it. You see, slaves, they, they, they don't get a Sabbath. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they didn't get to rest. And by commanding the people to rest, God is reminding them that they are no longer slaves. 
That's one of the signs that you are no longer a slave. It's one of the ways that you can celebrate and remember that God has freed you from the Pharaoh, taken you out of Egypt, broken the chains of slavery, and set you free. But if we look at the way that we interact with the work, our work, if we look at the way that we resist this commandment to rest, then we have to be aware of the fact that there's something about work that constantly entices us and enslaves us. Because you see, in regards to work, there's this false gossip of work that's always at work in us trying to seduce us. It's telling us things that your work, it's telling us things like your work can set you free. Your work is what can give you value. Your work is what can give you purpose in life. It's telling you, take this good thing that God gave you and make it ultimate. Worship it, sacrifice for it, live for it, or even die for it. Work is telling you that whatever you lack in your life or in your soul, work is the way for you to get it. Are you unhappy? Do you want a nicer house? Do you want a fancier car? Do you want a vacation that will look better on Instagram? Work for it. That's your salvation and that's your good news. And we quickly become slaves to it. Are we living like slaves to our work? I think there are two lies that can help us identify if we are, enslaved, if, if we are in fact enslaved by our work. The first is that work promises you that it will give you what you, what, what you want. But in the, end, in the end, it will not. Because you think about it, especially... In the biblical concept of slavery, slaves do not benefit from their labor. All the profits, all the utility, all the benefits go to someone else. Think about the way that you work, the way things that you sacrifice, the things that you pour into your work, and ask yourself, are you doing it because it's promised you something? It's promised to give you satisfaction or fulfillment or joy in your life. I know that when I first started working, right, like I graduated from college, I think on a Saturday, and I started work the next Monday. I didn't take a vacation. I didn't go backpacking through Europe or stay in hostels or any of that stuff. I wish I had. But I was so quick to get into work that I graduated on Saturday and I showed up for work on Monday. And I didn't realize it until, that I, until I got married. But, uh, you know, I worked and then I think six or seven years later I got married. My honeymoon after I got married was the first vacation I took in those seven years. I took long weekends to go see my family for Thanksgiving or Christmas, but the idea of taking a week or two weeks off for vacation, it just never struck my mind. It was never a possibility for me. And I was thinking about it. Why did I do that? Why did I work so hard? Why did I resist taking a break so much? And I was thinking about it this weekend, and, and this one story comes to me. It was like early in my career, I was working I was working in a trading shop, and if you guys know about trading shops, the lowest jobs are the worst. I've made more coffee runs than anyone in this room, I guarantee you that. Multiple ones a day. And I was berated, and to make it all worse, to make it all worse I, I wasn't paid very well. And I was sitting there, and I was like, I'm getting bullied, People are saying awful things to me at work. I'm always getting in trouble. I have to make, do these demeaning things like go and pick up coffee all the time. And to make matters worse, I looked at my peers, the people that I graduated with and the people who started consulting jobs or investment banking jobs, uh, they were making more money than me. And it wasn't a lot. I mean, entry-level jobs, none of them pay that well, but they were making five, ten thousand $10,000 more a year than me, and it drove me nuts. It made me so jealous. 
It made me covet so much. I thought to myself, how much better are they than me? How much better must their lives be than mine? Just because they're making five or $10,000 more a year. And they're making five or $10,000 more a year this year than next year. It might be 20. In 10 years, it might be a couple hundred. And, and, and there is, if I'm honest with you, as a, as a single man, I worry that it would affect my ability to find a spouse. I thought that it would make me less attractive if I wasn't earning more money. And so I was really unhappy, and even when my work would send me down to like, campuses to do job fairs, I would like, sneak around and try to like, submit my resume to other entry-level jobs, because I was like, I want to get that bump up. And what happened was I, 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 I happened to meet uh, an older trader at my shop who was looking for like, a number two guy, and he's like, come and work with me. You know, do good work with me. And this is what he said to me. If you do good work with me, if you stick to it, then I promise you in three years, you will make more money than anybody, like any of your peers. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And so I worked hard. And so I didn't take vacations. If he needed me to fly to, if he needed me to fly to some city with some refinery in it, I flew down there. I stayed in more um, courtyard Marriott's than, than I even care to remember. I was constantly working for this guy. This guy needed anything I would do it for him because what he promised me that if I did it, that I would make more money, and I believe that if I make more money, that I would feel more whole, more complete, and more satisfied in my life. One thing I realized how, how kind of backwards my life had been is when I went to the Singapore office for the first time. And if you guys know, like, the kind of time difference, it's basically just the opposite. So while we're sleeping, they're awake, and when they're sleeping, we're awake. And I went to the Singapore office. I worked there for a couple weeks, and then I found out that the people in the Singapore office had a nickname for me. And I'm like, Brian, your nickname is Dracula. I was like, is it because I'm really pal? No. Uh, They said, your nickname is Dracula because no matter what, If we send an email to you, it doesn't matter if it's 10 p.m. your time, 2 a.m. your time, 5 a.m. your time, without fail, you will respond within 10 or 15 minutes. Like, that's that's who you are. It's amazing. People, like, like send emails, and then the team just waits around to see when you're going to (laughs) respond. And the reason why is because I never slept well. Every 30 minutes or an hour, I would roll over, grab my BlackBerry, turn it on, check what the market was doing, check my emails, and then try to go back to sleep. I never rested. And so I did this for a good number of years, and I remember later down the road, I was talking to the same boss of mine. He was a good guy. He came through with all of his promises, and I was telling him, you know, know, man, I, I just need to make more money. I just need to make more money. And so we went out to lunch, and he sat me down, and he's like, Bryant, why are you so dissatisfied? Do you make more money than all of your peers? I said, yes. Do you make more money than your older brother who's 10 years older than you and a corporate lawyer? Do you make more money than that guy? And I said, yes. And he's like, do you make more money than your father who's a PhD from MIT? You're, you're, a, you're a bachelor's of science from University of Illinois. Your dad is a PhD from MIT. He's worked for 40 years or whatever. Do you make more money than he could ever imagine to make? And I said, Yes. But this is the thing, I was still so dissatisfied. I wanted more money. I wanted more compensation. I wanted to buy more things. It, 
Money, when I was young, had promised to satisfy all my desires and to make me feel fulfilled. And then when I had some, it didn't do any of those things. Because this is the thing about work. It promises you that whatever you lack, what you're lacking, what you're insecure about, your identity, your worth, it promises to give you all those things, to validate you, to give you an identity, to give you uh, an ego in this world. It promises you that it's going to give it to you, but the thing about work is no matter how far you get, it never says enough. It never says mission accomplished. It always says more, more, and more. And I also wanted to bring up this idea that uh, there's, there's this downside. <coughs> Excuse me, can someone grab me water? Sorry, I left it somewhere. It might be up there. Uh, the downside of allowing our work to enslave us. Okay, because we think that work is promising us all those things, and I, and I guarantee you that it won't really get you those things. But the flip side of it is not only does it not deliver on all the benefits, but it actually harms you. I was looking up some statistics online. Americans left some $52 billion worth of unused vacation time up. That makes ditching vacation both one of the most costly and common ways Americans overwork themselves. And not, so, so you're giving up your vacation, right? Whatever. But workers that don't take vacations were also found to be less productive and score lower on performance reviews. A lot of you guys, you guys will eat lunch at your desk. Some of your companies provide you lunch so that you will never, ever leave. That's not a benefit, by the way. But eating at your lunch desk is bad for you. A recent UK study found that people who ate more meals at their desk were more likely to be overweight. A 2012 study found that when workers were forced to take a five-day break from work email, they experienced less stress, stress and became more efficient in completing more work tasks. More efficient in completing work tasks. The hiatus even led to workers having more natural variable heart rates. Isn't that crazy? If you take a break from email for five days, it will make your heart work better. Marriages involving a workaholic are twice as likely to end in a divorce. For those that stay together, the psychological damage can be considerable. Listen to this. Kids of workaholics have been found to experience greater levels of depression and anxiety than the children of alcoholics. Workaho- uh, workaholism has been linked with a laundry list of disorders, including alcoholism, sleep problems, heart disease, depression, anxiety, weight gain, high blood pressure, and even premature death. And that's the fallacy about work. What you think is going to give you life, not only doesn't give you life, but it's literally killing you. Um, you know, I, I was reading this New York Times article about, um, it's, it, it's, it, you guys should read it because it, it probably applies more to your age group than mine, but why are young people pretending to love work? And they, they quoted this, this guy, Bernie Klinder, who's a consultant for a large tech company, he said he tried to limit himself to five 11-hour days per week, which adds up to an extra day of productivity. But he said the problem is, is if your peers are competitive, working a normal work week will make you look like a slacker. Still, he's realistic about his place in the rat race. I'd try to keep in mind that if I drop dead tomorrow, all of my acrylic workplace awards would be in the trash the next day, and my job would be posted in the paper before my obituary. 
Like, what is your work really getting? And I'm not saying don't be satisfied about your work. Don't be passionate about your work. Don't find joy in your work. But what I'm saying is when you take that good thing and you, ultimate, and you make it ultimate, it will destroy you. It will enslave you. Um, let's see, where are we on time? I, I, I do want to bring this up too. Like, your, your work promises that you'll be in control, but you're not. You know, like, a lot of you guys sit here and say, well, work is going to be my salvation. It's going to, how am I going to find my identity and purpose? But so, I, I talk with so many of you guys, and you guys get reviews that are unfair. You guys work for bosses who have, like, personal vendettas against you. Some of you guys lose your jobs for reasons that you feel are really unjustified. You put so much work into something, that the, but the system's corruptible easily. And not only that, like, it will make you do things that you never, ever wanted to do. You know, like, I, I don't know about you guys, but on Sunday mornings every week, my iPhone shames me because it tells me about my screen time. And it analyzes it, it compares it to, like, other weeks. But I don't know, do, do any of your iPhones do this? And every week I'm shocked at how many hours I spend in time in front of a screen. I promise myself I'm not gonna, like, next week it's going to be a lot better, but hardly ever is. It's all kind of consistent. And I sit there and I look at my phone and I'm thinking, my, and, and I look at what my iPhone is telling me and I'm like, man, that's hours that I didn't spend with my wife or with my kids or in the Word or reading a good book or just spending time enjoying life. I'm just giving it away to this iPhone. And this is the thing, I bring this up, and you guys might think it's unrelated, because I think it has to do with work. I think it has to do with work because a lot of people will be like, well, our addiction to screens is all about technological advancement. I don't think that's true because I grew up at a time before iPhones and there were always things that competed for our time and our attention. Like I grew up, I, I didn't have one, but my friends at school had them. They had Game Boys. They had portable video games that you could have played all the time. There was a screen there. Right? And, uh, you know, before uh, iPhones and iPods, there were uh, Discmans and Walkmans. You had access to music at all the times, right? But there was something about even those personal entertainment devices that if you tried to bring them to church and play your Game Boy during your church, you would have gotten in trouble with your parents. If you tried to bring your Discman and in the middle of a, a date or in the middle of, like, family dinner, you plugged in and you just decided to listen to a song... People have been like, that's rude. But there were, there, so there were always these safeguards that said you shouldn't just give away your attention, you shouldn't just focus on any things, that you should be present until this thing came along called the Blackberry. They used to nickname it the Crackberry because they joked around that you were addicted to it. And I would argue that our addiction to screen time is really, uh, is really an after effect of our enslavement to work because while you couldn't bring a Game Boy to family dinner and you couldn't bring a Walkman to family dinner, you couldn't say, I'll just interrupt what I'm doing right now so I can listen to a song or I can play a game. The Blackberry, what it did was you brought it to dinner and they'd be like, hey, do you really need that on the table? Be like, yeah, it's for work. So I need to be connected. I need to check my emails. And that's how it became approvable to get addicted to screens. That's how it became approvable to treat people like commodities. That's how it got approved. That's how it became acceptable to basically, to the point where I'm sitting having dinner with my six-year-old son, and I, if I'm honest, 
He's got to entertain me to a certain level or I'm just going to turn and look at Instagram. And I don't think it's because of technology. I actually think it's because of work. And it's something that we've given away of ourselves. We've given so much of ourselves away at the expense of it. So who's really in control? Um, We're going to kind of try to catch up in this, but the, the second point is, so there's the idea that, so sorry, the first point is that, yeah, we're, we're enslaved to our work. It promises to give you things, but it won't. But we have this deeply embedded idol or false theology of work where we think that whatever we're lacking in this life, whatever we want in this life, we just have to work harder for it. Okay? And that's why we don't rest. The second reason why we don't rest is because we don't trust that God is a good father. We don't trust that God is a good father. Remember, Exodus 20 that the Ten Commandments, they're rooted in this, di- this idea of creation, that we should rest because God rested. And it points back to today's passage, Genesis 2. And it reads this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the wall of the, the, wall the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay? you ever think about why God had to rest? I mean, I know it's like kind of a common Bible study question if you've ever done a Bible study on this passage, but why did God have to rest? He didn't have to rest because he was tired. He didn't have to rest because he had to take a breather. Okay, he, he wasn't just being lazy or whatever. There has to be a reason why he rested. And this is kind of a weird way of looking at it, so just stick with me here. Do you ever wonder also why verse 2 says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay? Again, and on the seventh day, God finished the work that he did, and he rested on the seventh day. Traditionally, if you've grown up in the church and you've done Sunday school or whatever, we think that God creates the heavens and the earth and everything else in six days, and then he rests on the seventh. Right? And if that's the case, wouldn't it have made more sense to say that God finished his work on the sixth day and then rested on the seventh? Are you following me? But it says that he finished on the seventh day and he rested. Abraham Joshua Herschel, he's this uh, 20th century Jewish scholar and author, wrote something intriguing about this Genesis 2 passage that I think is worth us going over. He writes, obviously the ancient rabbis concluded that there was an act of creation on the seventh day. Just as heaven and earth were created in six days, I'm going to butcher this word, but this idea of this Hebrew word of menuha was created on the Sabbath. After six days of creation, what did the universe still lack? Menuha. Came the Sabbath, came menuha, and the universe was complete. And what is this word that I'm probably mispronouncing? It's usually rendered rest. And it means here more than simply withdrawal from labor, labor or exertion, more than freedom from toil, strain or activity, or of any kind. Manuha is not a negative concept, but something real and intrinsically positive. This might have been the view of their ancient rabbis if they believed that it took a special act of creation to bring into being that the universe would be complete without it. What was created on the seventh day? Tranquility, serenity, peace, and rest. Okay? 
So while the traditional Christian viewpoint is slightly different, that God rested because he had completed the creation process, this premise is thought-provoking because the fact is God did create something on the seventh day. He created the Sabbath day, and God made it so. And so what we're saying is here is that God didn't just merely rest, but he created something. He gave something to us. In other passages in scriptures, he's saying it's a gift, the Sabbath. He ceased his creation work and he rested, but in by doing so, he created the Sabbath. If God ceased from creation work to enjoy creation, then surely he rested so that he could enjoy his creation, his created man, the only thing that he chose to create in his image. You had to put it in another way. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, in creation, man was made as God's image, intended to naturally as God's child to reflect his father. Since his father worked creatively for six days and rested on the seventh, Adam, like his son, was to copy him. Together on the seventh day, they were to walk in the garden. That day was a time to listen to all the Father had to show and to tell about the wonders of his creating works. Okay, so the idea is that it's not an absence of something. It's not merely ceasing to do something, but it's also holding on to something very beautiful, something very life-giving, something very good for us. You know, you know James went over this a little bit last week. But this idea in verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. He blessed it and he made it holy. The Hebrew word here, bless, I think it's pronounced Barak, like our former president. But in the creation story of life, in the creation story, this word is used to communicate an ability to procreate, an ability to produce life, to make more life. If you look at the creation story that God blesses, God barracks three times in Genesis. The first time is when he's talking about uh, the, 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 the animals. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and, and let the birds multiply in the earth. But before he says that, he says, God bless them. The same word. It's like, go and create more life. And he says it again when he creates man. Verse 28, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same blessing and command to multiply and create life. And the last time is here when he says that God blessed the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath day is not something that's made to take away from you or to deny you something or to restrict you, but it's something that God is giving you as a gift to, so that you could have more life so that you could grow and be restored and be refreshed. It's something positive. And the second word that he uses is that it says that God made it holy. God made the Sabbath holy. In Hebrew, that's a weighty word that is usually used to describe God, that, that God is holy. But the first time it's used in the Bible, it's used when it says that God made this Sabbath day holy. How do you make a day holy? How do you make time holy? I think in some ways it's like this. God's telling you to set apart this time, to slow down, to breathe it in, to savor every moment. Have you ever been in a time like that? 
Have you guys ever been in, maybe when you guys first started dating, when you guys were long distance and you guys got together and you're like, you know what, I'm going to enjoy every moment of this. You know, or maybe when it's when you're with a good friend who you haven't seen for a little while. Maybe it's when you see your parents and you're like, no, 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 I just want to slow this down and enjoy this and savor it and experience it and remember it. And I thought about this, and, and I'll ask them to put this up, this, this old Facebook photo of me and my six-year-old son Isaiah that I posted probably five years ago. And in, in the caption I wrote on this is, was, was, was this, one day when I'm old and gray, I will look at this picture of us and it will remind me that my time with you was one of the best times of my life. And that's what, I think that's part of what God is saying when he's saying to slow down and to make time holy, to make this day holy, to make it something that you savior, to make it something that you remember, to make it something that you cherish. It'll be one of those things that you remember when you look back on your life. And so do you believe that? Do you believe that God is a good father? Do you believe that God is somebody who goes out of his way to create the space so that you could experience that this day that is both blessed and holy, a day that you're supposed to slow down and just enjoy, appreciate, savor, experience all the beauty and majesty and life-giving power and energy that the Spirit has for you in this life? Because I think a lot of us, when we think about the Sabbath, we're like, God is trying to take something from me. God is trying to deny something of, from me. But, but it's so important to recognize who is commanding us to do this. Because if, if, if someone's going to tell you, I want all of your time, it's going to make a difference who's saying it to you. If it's a judge or a prosecutor or a prison warden, then you're like, that's obviously a reason to mourn that, to lament to be heard or to be disappointed. But if it's a good father, he's saying, I want you to drop everything and spend every moment with me today. Can't we just trust that he has in his attention our best interest at heart? You know, so, so we need to remember that our good father is telling us to do this. And lastly, the reason why we don't rest is because we don't believe that we are God's children. If we're honest, it can be difficult. Even if we decide that work isn't giving me everything, it's not giving me what it's promised to me, it's actually disappointing me or stretching me out or burning me out. And even we get to the point where we're like, okay, well, maybe God is welcoming me into his presence for him to spend time with me. Maybe God wants to uh, put forth a Sabbath so that we could enjoy each other, so that we could walk together. There's part of us that thinks, yeah, but still I shouldn't be there. This part of us thinks that maybe God shouldn't rested on the seventh from creation because maybe he wasn't finished with me yet. Maybe I'm still incomplete. Maybe I'm still broken. Maybe I'm still flawed. Maybe God still wouldn't want me in his presence because if he knew how messed up I really was, why would he invite me? And I think that's actually not a bad response to have. Like, I think that makes sense. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and dined there when you were terribly underdressed? That feeling that I don't belong here, people are looking at me, uh, even though I got a table and I'm sitting in hearing, I don't fit in here. Or have you, ever, um, have you ever been in a job that you felt like you were underqualified? There's this whole thing called imposter syndrome, that even if you're in a job, you sit there and you doubt whether you're qualified or not for it. 
You think that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. I'm just here because I don't know why I'm here. I just happen to be here, but I'm not really qualified to be here. And when people find out, I'm going to be exposed and I'm going to lose my job. It reminds me of a time that I, was, uh, I, I flew to New York for a business trip. I, I, I went to New York all the time for business trips back in the day. But this is my first time uh, staying at the meatpacking district, which, I mean, this is a couple years ago, so meatpacking district was still kind of hip and cool. And so my car pulls up to the hotel, and I get out of the hotel, and I just look around me, and it is just like everywhere around me, beautiful people. Every man is like six foot three and chiseled and really fashionable and really good shape and just extremely handsome. I'm like, oh, what, the, what is going on? And every woman is like five foot eight or taller and just impeccably dressed and they look like they could just walk out of a, out of a magazine. And I, it made me upset. You know, like I looked around, everybody around me was just beautiful. And I actually thought to myself, I should just go stay in a different hotel. You know, like I, I should never stay in the meatpacking district again. I didn't realize it was like fashion week. But just everybody was beautiful and surrounding me. But that same kind of idea that if we're honest, and if we're just left in our own humanity, in the cells that we know ourselves to be, and we view this invitation from God to walk with and to be in his presence, then I think we have to be honest that there's something that thinks, does God even really want to spend time with me? Does he realize how unattractive I am? Does he realize how sinful and broken I am? How could a God like that ever want to be with a person like me? You know, and so we turn to this last passage in Mark. And it says, and Jesus, and he's always going around on the Sabbath, and he's always, you know, most of Jesus' healings happened on the Sabbath. Okay? And so Jesus turns to them and to, turns, said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay? And he continues, and, he, and we go into this passage, and, there's this idea, and, and you see that Jesus walks into the synagogue, and there's a man here with this withered hand. Okay, he's, he's got this deformity. I don't know how he got it. I don't know if it was an accident. I don't know if he was born with it. I don't know if he caught some kind of disease. But he has this withered hand. And if you understand the context, the historical context that, 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 this, that the story is happening, you'll realize that that, that that hand would have been something for him to be ashamed of. Okay? It's not something that he would have held out there and been proud of. It would have been a sign that either he had sinned or that his parents had sinned, but he was being punished for some kind of sin. And people would have seen him and thought that he was unclean. That this is somebody who had sinned. And they would, when he walked in the room, people would just kind of scatter and give him space because nobody would want to touch this guy. That's the way that this man has been living his life. Never touched, never accepted, never really seen, never accepted. And so what would you do if you had this withered hand? What would you do if you were struck with this withered hand? I think you would hide it. I think you would try to not let anybody see. I think you would try to cover it with your cloak or whatever they wore back then. But the thing about hiding, and I think a lot of you can relate to this, is that when you hide things, when you are trying to cover yourself in your shame, that's a very tiring and exhausting thing for you to do. Okay, so you have this man, and he's kind of probably sitting in the shadows, and he's probably very ashamed and trying to hide this withered hand of his. And the passage continues, and they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Okay, so you have these Pharisees. 
And they're just watching it. They might have even had this man with the withered hand come to try to set Jesus up. And they're just watching and seeing what happens. And this is the thing. This man has a withered hand. These men, these Pharisees, have a withered heart. See, because both these people, there was something withered about them. There was something wrong. They were both buying into this false gossip of, of, of work. They are saying to themselves, what they had in life or what they didn't have in life, it was all dependent on what they did or what they deserved. It's this false gospel of work, this false theology of work. Both the Pharisees and the man believed that what they got out of life was based on the work. The man with the withered hand looks at his deformity, he believes there's nothing he can do to receive healing, so he hides the shame, so he hides in his shame. The Pharisees with their withered hearts believe that their sin is keeping them from God, so they commit to their works and their righteousness, hoping that they can earn God's approval. It's all about what you do or what you can't do. And so Jesus is looking at this, and he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. Like, how does Jesus even know? Well, he's God. But the guy has a hidden hand under his cloak. He's not putting it out for for people to see. And in front of everybody, Jesus says, come here. It's an invitation into the presence of Jesus. Verse 4 says, And he said to them, the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. This is also an invitation. Jesus is saying, he's trying to engage these people. Let's talk about this. Let's tease this out. Let's, let, 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 yeah, let's, let, let's talk. But, 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 but the people with their withered hearts, they could not accept this invitation. Okay, and verse 5 says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and he said to them, Stretch out your hand. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. See, in, what's happening is Jesus asked the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand. It's something that he never would have wanted to do because he was hiding in his shame. He's saying, This is what's keeping me from God. This is what's keeping me from other people. Nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to be around me. Nobody wants any of this. And Jesus is saying in front of everybody, come into the light and not only expose it, but stretch it out. A withered hand. He's saying, do the impossible and stretch it out. And by doing so, when he accepts this invitation to rest, when he, in obedience he obeys, he is restored and healed. Jesus asked the man to stop hiding, to stop pretending, to stop trying so hard, and stop to, to stop doing all those things and just trust in him. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, what he did was he invited this man to rest and to put off the false gospel of work. He said, stop believing it's about what you did not do or what you did, that your standing before God no longer has to do with any of those things. Your standing of God has to do with Christ alone. And for a lot of us, if we're honest, even the Christians here, that's an invitation that sounds impossible. That sounds too good to be true. It's something that is very difficult for us to accept. But will you with your withered hands or your withered hearts, stretch it out and do the impossible and believe what Christ has won for you and provided for you and given to you on the cross. Lastly, I just want to kind of bring it back just to talk about practical implications about the Sabbath and by talking about nothing practical at all. Because a lot of people will sit there and they'll be like, what does it mean to Sabbath? 
Does it have to be Saturday? Does it have to be Sunday? Does it have to be 24 hours? Do I have to spend a certain number of hours reading the scriptures or praying? You know, I was reading this Tim Keller article about it, and he's talking about all these different things. He's talking about visual arts and, and, and going to museums and looking at art, and he's talking about going to you know, concerts and listening to music and enjoying God that way. He's talking about um, 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 deliberate time, like setting up time, and also just letting time kind of unfold. All these different aspects of the Sabbath, and it's enough to kind of make you go crazy sometimes. I didn't mean to insult Tim Keller, I'm sorry. But, um, you know, and so... And, 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 and this is the other thing about the Sabbath. Is like we have all these different kind of voices in our head telling us what it should look like, how we should spend it, that honestly, for the people that I have talked to who actually observe the Sabbath, a lot of them feel guilty, ashamed. After, even after they have a Sabbath, they're like, I feel like I was lazy, I didn't deserve that or earn that. Or people who don't have a Sabbath, a lot of them times will answer the same way, just the reverse. I feel like I haven't worked hard enough or or done enough to earn that Sabbath. And again, that's completely contradictory to the Sabbath. So I'll say this to you, and this is what's kind of been helping me as I've been trying to pray through about what a Sabbath looks like for me. A couple of weeks ago, it was my birthday. Happy birthday to me. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, my birthday was coming up, and Dury said to me, um, you know, I know it's your birthday weekend, but my best friend, who she lives in Switzerland, is going to come to Ann Arbor, Michigan for a wedding. Ann Arbor, Michigan for a wedding. And she's like, I know it's your birthday weekend, but it's my best friend in the whole world, and I just had to ask, would you be open to going to Ann Arbor uh, for the weekend? And I said, of course, Ann Arbor is a beautiful place. It has the beach and all the finest restaurants, such a cosmopolitan city. Of course, I would love to go to Ann Arbor. Obviously, that's not what I said. I, I said, but I did say, did I, but I did agree to go. And the reason why I agreed to go, I was like, Dury, you're my wife. I love you. And on my birthday, it would, nothing could make me happier than to see you enjoy time with your best friend. Because I know you. I know what, how you're wired. I know what makes you happy. And, that, and, 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 and knowing that when you're in that position and you're happy and, 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 and you're, you're enjoying life and all these things, that makes me happy. And then when we got up there, uh, I, you know, on my actual birthday, I looked up like a children's museum to go to. Not because I like to go to children's museum, but because I have two young sons. And so on my birthday, we went to a children's museum. I watched my sons run around and play, and that brought me joy. It brought me joy to see them enjoy. And I bring this up because, you know, we have this idea that God rested. If you go back to John 2, right? Or Genesis 2. God rested because he wanted to enjoy creation, right? God rested because he wanted to enjoy creation. And a lot of us will take that to mean that if we want to model that, that means that we should go out and enjoy creation. It means that if we want to enjoy Sabbath, then we should spend time in the Word and we should pray, but what we should also do is go for long walks, find mountains that don't exist in Chicago, go look at sunsets and enjoy creation. If we want to be image bearers of God, that's how we do it on the Sabbath. But I would challenge you, that one of the ways that we can be image bearers of God on the Sabbath and to mimic him is that God enjoys creation and that we, being his image bearers, being the thing in creation that brings most glory to him, that we should actually enjoy 
ourselves. That you should enjoy how God has created you, how God has wired you, what God has made you passionate about on your Sabbath. Because I think that when you do those things, I'm not talking about bad things, okay? Like, I'm not talking about like if, if you're, if you're, if you're a, uh, tempted to go give into negative things, to give into those things. But I think if you think about the ways that God has wired you to glorify him, the things that he's made you passionate about, those are the things that you should pursue on your Sabbath. It reminds me of uh, Chariots of Fire with Eric, uh, Eric Little. Um, but the whole idea that God made me fast and, and, and when I run, I can feel his joy. That if me as a father, if, if I'm a father and I love on my birthday to celebrate by watching my wife hang out with her best friend and my sons play at a children's museum, then how much more so is our good father happy to see us enjoy the ways that he has created us on the Sabbath. And I'll just leave you with one thing. The caveat is that is this. When Dury asked me, can we go and hang out with my best friend on your birthday in Michigan for the weekend? I said, obviously, nothing would make me happier than that. But I gave her this one caveat. Don't ditch me with the kids. I want to see you happy. I want you to spend time with your best friend because I know that's what brings you joy. But don't just leave me with the kids. She's welcome to come hang out with us. I would love to do things together. I would love you to be in that position. But don't just abandon me. Let me be there too. And I think that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind on our Sabbath. Is yes, enjoy yourself, but do in a way where you're welcoming God into that presence and into that rest. Let's pray.